Welcome to the second series of the Cutting Edge Issues podcast from the Department of International Development at the LSE. These podcasts are recordings from the Cutting Edge Issues in Development, Thinking and Practice lecture series for the academic year 2021-2022. This series of guest lectures is coordinated by me, Duncan Green, Professor in Practice in the Department, and the Professor of Development Studies, James Putzel. Each week in the Cutting Edge series, renowned guest lecturers share their expertise and spark discussion on an exciting range of issues, from the battle over COVID vaccines with Jayati Ghosh, to what's wrong with aid with Claire Short, to the political economy of Parasite, the Oscar-winning movie with Harjun Chang. Since 2020, the series has taken place online, enabling us to host fantastic speakers from around the world and to stream the lectures via this podcast and on YouTube, opening them up to a global audience. I hope you enjoy the lecture. And so now I really want to welcome our speaker. It's a long time in coming, this this session of the Cutting Edge Issues in Development Thinking and and Practice. And I'm really delighted that Isabella Weber has taken the time out to talk to us um, uh, about her really much celebrated book, um, her first book, uh, How China Escaped Shock Therapy, The Market Reform Debate. This book won the Joan Robinson Prize uh, last year, uh, 2021, and it's been much celebrated. I mean, it got on Martin Wolf's summer reading list last, last summer in the Financial Times. Um, scholars in both in uh, China studies and in um, development economics uh, ha- have lauded the book, you know, including, you know, the doyen of China studies, Dwight Perkins, uh, Peter Nolan, the founder of the, the China, the head of the China Center at Cambridge, and um, in fact a founding member of the development development studies at Cambridge, and people such as um, James Galbraith, um, Branko Milanovic, who was with us earlier in the series. Um, Danny Roderick have have sung the praises of this really important piece of work. Um, So Isabella is Assistant Professor of Economics and the Research Leader for China at the PERI or the Political Economy Research Institute at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst, one of the best places doing doing research um, on development on environmental matters from a political economy perspective in the United States and um, established by my old friend, Jim Boyce, who I hope is watching this lecture um, in some form or another. Um, And if you are, you know, my greetings. Um, It also gives me enormous pleasure to welcome back to the LSE, Professor Andrew Fisher. He is Professor of Inequality, Social Protection and Development at the ISS, the Institute of Social Studies at The Hague, um, which is part of the Erasmus University, Rotterdam. He's scientific director of series, the Dutch Research School for International Development. He's co-editor of the journal Development and Change, a founding editor of the Oxford University Press book series, Critical Frontiers of International Development Studies. Andrew, is an expert on social policy, and he cut his teeth doing uh, uh, research on social policy in China, especially in the Tibetan areas 
of China. I had the great pleasure of being able to supervise that work long ago. Here's a case where the student far out, you know, um, achieves far beyond his former mentor, which I love to see. So I, I try to take just a little bit of credit for Andrew, but we're very lucky to have Andrew as a critical thinking, one of the one of the important thinkers in development studies today. And I think he won't shy away from asking um, Isabella difficult questions. You know, I just just before you start, Isabella, I want to say that you know I I had the 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 uh, a long term interest in China, way back from you know the early nineteen seventies. And learned a lot about China from our, our mentor, who was also Andrew, also knew, knew too, uh, Professor Sam Numoff at McGill University. And Numoff played a, an important role as an advisor to Zhu Rongji. And so we had some direct kind of insight into the early days of reform and what was going on. I mean, Numoff was one of the people who could maybe take a small credit for advising. Uh, particularly about avoiding some of the some some of the problems that were emerging in other parts of the developing world in relationship to um, the kinds of marketizing reforms that then went on to be so important in the shock therapies that 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 leveled um, many economies uh, of the former Soviet Union and of Eastern Europe. So. I think gives us a lot of pleasure to see you doing this work, this important work um, in explaining uh, the different direction that China is taking. So I'll be quiet I'll now and turn over the screen to Isabella. Thank you so much, Professor Pozzo. Um, This is wonderful um, and it's very humbling to hear you speak about my work in that way. Thank you so much for the invitation. This is a really terrific opportunity. And I'm also really delighted that Andrew has agreed to be the commentator for this event. Um, after this event, I hope to learn more about Numov's role. I wasn't aware of that part of the history. So thank you so much for, for, for bringing that up. Um, let me maybe also mention, since I realized that there are many students here in development studies, that when I started out doing this project, it was really pretty heretic to be asking such a big question and to be pursuing such a historical qualitative kind of work out of development economics. Um, and I just want to share this um, in the spirit of encouraging everybody to pursue the kind of questions that you really care about and that you really find important, um, rather than necessarily narrowing yourself by thinking that you can only ask questions that are uh, a ver ver variety um, of, of, of a theme that you pick, pick up um, from somewhere else where you just add a little footnote. Um, not to say that I have done more than adding a footnote, but just to encourage you to pursue the real questions that you care about. Um, okay, let me share my screen. The title of my book is How China Escaped Shock Therapy, the Market Reform Debate. At the core, this is really a book about the 1980s. And I, when I was pursuing this project, I could not have known that this whole theme of the end of the Cold War and the ways in which um, China came out of the Cold War would be such a topical issue 
by the time my book um, is coming out. And sadly, this is for the most um, unsettling political reasons. So I think in some sense, by taking us back to the 1980s, I am providing a context for the kind of challenges and the kind of reorganization in the global economy that we are facing today. In the book, I'm conceptualizing the 1980s as a crossroads in the global economy. I'm thinking of it as the beginning of China's economic convergence with the West, that is its economic convergence in terms of its weight in the global economy. However, this economic convergence did not come along with a wholesale institutional assimilation. China's institutions did not become like those in the United States or Europe in a wholesale fashion, even though China deeply marketized. And I think that the tension between the economic convergence, the lack of wholesale institutional um, assimilation, while at the same time, um, this deep marketization that involved an integration into global capitalism or cured is part of the tension that is defining our present moment. The 1980s is also a crossroads when we compare the fate of the two former giants of state socialism in the 20th century, that is Russia and China. In that sense, it's a divergence between Russia's fall and China's rise, which can be linked to a difference in approaches to market reforms. To be sure, my book is about China and not about Russia. I'm also not arguing that Russia's economic fall can be explained with a simple choice between either shock therapy or not shock therapy, and that's um, the end of it. Rather, by pointing to the outcomes of economic reform in Russia, I just want to illustrate what was at stake in the Chinese case without necessarily making any specific um, new contributions or uh, creating new insights on the Russian case. So if we look at the 1980s from a long run perspective, if we look at it from the very simple measure um, that is share in world GDP, we can see that if we go back to the early 19th century, for China, the 1980s is a turning point that marks the end of China's long fall in the world economy and the beginning of its re-emergence. In contrast, for the USSR, it makes the beginning, it marks the beginning of its decline. For Western Europe and the United States, the 1980s basically mark the beginning of what looks more and more like a slow, um, slow, very slow shrinking in relation to China, or broadly speaking, a form of um, stagnation. So in that sense, I'm talking about the 1980s as a turning point. Of course, share in GDP, um, share in world GDP is a very crude measure. This here is the medicine data, and we can debate whether medicine GDP um, data for the early 19th century is necessarily terrifically accurate and so on. But I do think that it does capture a very broad trends where we want to um, emphasize the trends and not necessarily the specific numbers. If we zoom into the Russian case and ask ourselves, um, how did the two 
crucial macroeconomic indicators evolve um, as Russia was moving out of the planned economy and into the market economy, um, then we can see that inflation really skyrocketed. Please note that this graph is on a logarithmic scale. Since we could not even plot this on a regular scale, the inflation graph would be shooting through the roof. I don't know in what building you are sitting, so that might be a rough statement for my building, it certainly is true. Um, whereas in contrast, the GDP here looks as if it merely stagnated. In reality, this only looks this way because inflation exploded so much. In fact, the 1990s saw a, a very dramatic collapse in GDP. And this was not only a collapse in GDP, but also a collapse in life expectancy, public health, access to public education, and so on. So a whole range of um, key indicators of social um, welfare um, rapidly declined as a result of the transition into a market economy. Um, now my slide is no longer moving. Here we go. Um, if we look at the same two indicators in relation to the Chinese case, that is again, inflation measured in terms of consumer price index and GDP, we can see that almost consistently um, GDP growth outpaced inflation with the exception of the late 90s, which also happens to be the most neoliberal moment in China's development trajectory. Now, um, from the perspective of development economics, this is not a small deal since China, as we know, experienced one of the fastest um, growth um, episodes in, in, on record in, 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 in human history, really. Um, and we know that periods of very fast growth tend to be inflationary. In the case of China, this very fast growth um, was not inflationary if we measure the relationship between the pace of increase in the general price level and the pace of increase in GDP. Another way of looking at this comparison is to ask what happened with inequality. And we can see in this graph, which plots um, the incomes, average incomes per adult by population quantiles from 1980 to 2015, drawing on the data um, uh, uh, compiled by Piketty and co-authors, that in both cases, inequality increased rapidly. In the case of China, the increase in inequality coincided with an increase in the absolute levels. So in other words, the growth in income at the top outpaced the growth of income at the bottom. In the case of Russia, we see a general, very severe decline in incomes, um, and then again, an outpacing of um, the higher income groups um, in, in, the, in the phase uh, growth phase from the late 1990s uh, compared to the lower income groups. This then has resulted in a situation where by um, 2013 or so, the bottom 99% um, in China have outpaced the income per adult um, in, uh, in, in comparison to Russia. So in other words, in both cases, we have seen very drastic and um, uh, 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 concerning um, problems with inequality, but in one case with a general rising 
um, rise of levels, and in the other case, um, preceded by a very drastic decline of the general levels. So if this is the case, if the outcome of marketization stands in such sharp contrast between these two former giants of socialism, it raises the question, what was the economic policy that was part of um, facilitating the transition? In the case of Russia, the answer to this question is very straightforward or relatively straightforward, and it's been called shock therapy um, by those advocating the kind of economic policies that were implemented, as well as by those who later came to be critical of these kind of policies. Now, shock therapy, very broadly speaking, is a package of um, a range of different economic policy measures which are all meant to create a market economy out of a planned economy. And the basic logic is that you have to abolish the planned economy in order to make space for the market economy to emerge. This meant that in the first instance, all prices should be liberalized since as you might have learned in your economics textbooks, um, first of all, you need to get the prices right. If you don't have price signals, you basically don't have a market from the perspective of, um, of, of textbook economics. So the liberalization of all prices should then be um, facilitated by macroeconomic austerity, where the idea is that through monetary and fiscal restraint, the general price level could be um, controlled and it could be prevented that um, prices would be spiraling entirely entirely out of control beyond um, a certain initial um, uh, uh, burst in inflation. Footnote, if you remember the graph that I showed you on inflation, um, it's pretty clear that this macroeconomic austerity did not um, perform the function that it was meant to perform. Thirdly, um, trade liberalization um, was meant to integrate the newly created market economies into the world economy and then privatization should ensure that there would be market actors that are responding to these price signals. However, even the most committed shock therapists acknowledge that privatization is a complicated and slow process of institutional rebuilding, and therefore it would take time. So the only thing that really can be implemented overnight and as one big shock was thought of as the liberalization of oil prices. So from this perspective then, the big bang that is meant to initiate the transition to a market economy was really composed of the liberalization of oil prices combined with macroeconomic austerity. Okay, so much about the abstract basic logic of shock therapy. If China's outcomes of reform were so drastically different, this raises the question what the intellectual foundations of China's reform approach might have been, or in other words, what was the economics of China's market reforms. As for example, Danny Roderick, who has been mentioned before, wrote in 2010, there has not been a greater instance of poverty reduction in history than that of China in the quarter century since the late 1970s, yet can anyone name the Western economists or the piece of research that played an instrumental role in China's reforms. So for a long time, it was not clear 
what the kind of economics was that underpinned China's market reforms. There have been contributions before my book, of course, this is a quote from 2010, um, but I'm basically trying to um, also respond um, to this question and through interviews um, that I have conducted with a whole range of economists in China that were critically involved in the first decade of reforms. And then by engaging with a whole wealth of primary sources um, from China, but also from private archives, for example, um, uh, on the part of World Bank officials, um, tr I try to reconstruct um, the ways in which economists have thought about China's market reforms in order to uncover the intellectual underpinnings of China's reform approach. Okay, with this broad framing in mind, let us go back to the late 1970s in China, which is the beginning of China's economic reforms. So first of all, we have to ask ourselves, why was there an urge for reform to begin with? In some sense, we can say that the idea of development economics or the idea of economic development for the sake of economic development only really begins or re-emerges in China in the late 1970s, since during the Maoist period, the idea was that there should be a primacy of um, political development, in particular during the Cultural Revolution and late Maoism, where the idea was that the emphasis should be on continuous revolution and on revolutionizing the social forms of organization in order to achieve ever more socialist um, forms of, 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 of social organization. Um, and uh, uh, basically the idea was that there was a hope that economic development would follow from these um, more progressive, more um, socialist forms of, of political and um, social and economic organization. That being said, there has been an ambition to achieve industrialization and to achieve economic development um, going back to the revolution. So already on the 2nd of October, that is the day after the revolution, the People's Daily, which is the so-called mouthpiece of the party, wrote in their editorial on the ambition of the revolution that it was among many other things, also to gradually change this backward agricultural country into a civilized and progressive industrial one. In the late 1970s, this precise goal um, then becomes the overarching most important goal for the Chinese state and party. Why is that so? To use the words of Chen Yun, who is along with um, Deng Xiaoping, the most important economic architect of China's reforms, he reflected in 1978 at the CCP World Conference, it has been almost 30 years since the founding of the People's Republic of China, but there are still beggars. How can this be the case? If this problem of having enough to eat is not solved, the peasants might rise in rebellion and be led to the cities by local party leaders demanding food. To be sure, during the Maoist period, China had achieved major breakthroughs in public health, in public education, in the building up of basic industries, 
in basic um, industrialization, in particular in the heavy industry sector. However, the majority of Chinese people living in the countryside were still very, very poor by the late 1970s. After Mao died in 1976, Mao's designated heir, so, um, who was called Hua Guofeng, had attempted another big push industrialization very much in the uh, spirit of Soviet um, economics, trying to pursue a 10-year plan where now the idea was that um, China would be importing foreign technology and foreign capital goods, and in return would be exporting oil. And through the adaptation of these advanced technologies and capital goods, would be able to very quickly grow. And through the export of oil, would be able to do so without um, running into a foreign payment crisis. Now, it so happened that while in the early 70s, a lot of oil was found in China and the projections for future oil discoveries were basically based on these um, oil findings, this was actually a very unrealistic assumption. And when it became clear that there wasn't as much oil to be found as they had hoped, um, this whole model basically imploded. However, what had happened under Hua Guofeng's leadership was that Chinese delegations started to tour the world in pursuit of these foreign technologies and found that um, not only had China still uh, 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 large challenges um, to, to overcome in terms of basic living conditions of people in the countryside, but also um, the neighboring East Asian countries and several European countries had by far overtaken China in ways in which they had not quite yet realized. And they also came to, to, to find that basically, as, as one of the leading um, uh, uh, officials, uh, Deng Lijin put it, there's no sign of revolution to be found anywhere abroad. So facing this challenge of poverty in the countryside, realizing just how far in their own words, China had fallen behind these other countries, there was a realization that in light of the implosion of this last attempt at a big 10 year plan, China somehow needed a new kind of economic model in pursuit of economic development. In this context, already in 1979, Deng Xiaoping, who by then um, was, had become China's leader, said to a um, foreign journalist, saying that the market is limited to capitalism is wrong. Why can't socialism practice market economics? So already one year after the official beginning of reform and opening up, Deng Xiaoping acknowledged that in pursuit of a new kind of economic model, China would need to um, attribute a greater role to markets. But the question was, how could one introduce market mechanisms into the kind of command economy that was inherited from Maoism? So in that sense, there was a big ideological question around the compatibility of socialism and markets, but there was also a seemingly technical question of how to introduce market mechanisms into China's planned or command economy, which on the surface 
might seem like a quibble amongst economists um, and uh, maybe just a matter of, 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 of tweaking a little bit in this direction or another, but turned out to be enormously consequential since it ultimately meant the escape from shock therapy um, as China was working out an alternative answer to this question of how to introduce market mechanisms. In this whole context, Deng Xiaoping um, famously wanted to put economics in command. During the Cultural Revolution, one of the leading slogans under Mao was that politics should be in command. And in fact, economics as an academic discipline had been largely abolished and had been branded as a bourgeois aberration. Um, and most of China's leading economists had been um, sent to the countryside. Some even ended up in, 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 in labor camps. And the major institutions of economic research were basically on hold during the Cultural Revolution. When reform began, these economists returned to their research institutions and their universities. However, it took some time for them to basically re-establish the economics profession. So in other words, at the same time, while economics was meant to be put in command, economics as an academic discipline was only really being recreated. Or to use Deng Xiaoping's words in a speech in January 1980, which was titled The Present Situation and the Task Before Us, a good number of comrades who were shunted aside for many years haven't been back in their original positions for very long. They have lost touch with the situation even those who stayed at their posts all through are confronted with new problems they find hard to grasp immediately. So in other words, economics was meant to be put in command, but wasn't quite up for the task. In this context, China started to recreate market um, mechanisms in a experimentalist fashion and in a way that drew back to practices that had been established during the Civil War in the 1940s. We have to remember that by 1980, most of the most influential senior leaders in China were still of the revolutionary generation, of the first revolutionary generation. They had experienced the civil war, and some of them were the key architects of the economic policies during the civil war. I came to this realization by studying the minutes of a World Bank um, economist who noted in his notebook after days of meetings with Chinese counterparts, why do the Chinese answer to every question that they have to go back to the liberation period policies? This, of course, raises the question, what were the liberation period policies? And as I'm arguing in my book, the major challenge for China, for, for, for the newly born communist China in the very early years, was to overcome hyperinflation. Many thought, um, both on the communist side as well as on the part um, of, of American commentators and other commentators in the West, that the Chinese nationalists had basically, quote unquote, lost China as a result of being unable to bring hyperinflation under control. 
they had consulted with American advisors. In fact, um, the, 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 the director of the Office of Price Administration who was um, in charge of price control in the United States during World War II also visited China and advised the nationalists on implementing a similar kind of price freeze. However, that was a pretty, pretty <laughs> um, immediate failure since hyperinflation was already rampant and China's economy was so disintegrated with many um, agricultural producers spread out um, in, in, in the countryside who became more or less disconnected from markets and started to revert to subsistence agriculture so that um, the, the, the money that was being circulated um, basically um, was not able to exchange against a whole lot of goods so that the underlying breakdown of the value of money was not so much in a, a matter of the specific kind of currency um, or the specific kind of price regime, but more a matter of the real lack of stuff to be exchanged against money. So what the communists had done was to organize commercial agencies that basically reintegrated markets in the countryside um, with the urban economy, re-established trading routes and ensured that the producers in the countryside um, started to produce again for the market. And um, by doing that, basically ensured that their currencies could buy things in the countryside, but also um, would, that people who were getting that money in return for their agricultural produce would get urban industrial products in return so that the value of money was to some degree reestablished. And this similar kind of logic of basically stabilizing the market through state commerce in order to stabilize the value of money was then also used in the liberation period. In this context, Chen Yun, um, whom I've already introduced, was one of the key architects of China's reforms, stated on April 1950, so a year after the revolution, uh, sorry, a couple of months after the revolution, quote, rising prices are not good, falling prices too are not good for production. It is better to be groping for stones to cross the river more steadily. Now, this slogan, it is better to be groping for stones to cross the river more steadily, has become probably the most famous slogan to characterize China's economic reform approach. And it goes back straight to 1950, straight to the idea of price stabilization and straight to the idea of the state recreating and reintegrating markets in order for the economy to, um, to reach a more stable kind of arrangement. So all of this goes to say that these economic and political leaders who were charged in charge in China in the early 80s had an enormous amount of experience of creating and reintegrating markets and stabilizing prices under the most difficult conditions. These are the conditions of civil war, hyperinflation, and um, state building. Now, in the book, I'm taking a step back and I'm connecting these experiences of the 1940s with China's own extremely long-standing statecraft tradition. You might wonder 
why would someone in a book about the 1980s bother to write a chapter about ancient Chinese economic thought? In economic history research, it's by now pretty much a standard insight that China had a very sophisticated, very advanced kind of market economy long before the arrival of, um, of Western powers. In other words, China has its own history of markets and market state relations that has evolved um, quite independently from the, that same history in the European or American context. It is important from my perspective that this was also a history of economic thought. It was not only that China had very sophisticated market arrangements. I'm not saying they were necessarily capitalist, but they did involve um, very wide ranging market activity and trading networks. That with this, there was also um, a lot of thinking and reflection about the question of how to govern um, markets and how the state should relate to market mechanisms. In particular, I think it emerges a principle of state market participation that dates back to the Guanzi, which can be dated around 300 BC. There's a whole debate around when precisely you want to date it, but I mean, very long ago and definitely um, in, in, in ancient times, um, but which kind of um, re resurfaces throughout um, Chinese history. This is not to say that there's one continuous um, way of thinking about state market relations. I'm just saying there's one tradition of thought that goes back very far, that competes with other views and so on, but that we can trace through history. And this idea of state market participation basically rests on the idea that state markets can be created through states and that states have a responsibility to stabilize markets and through the stabilization of markets achieve social stability. In this context, one key, key principle is the idea that one should be using what is heavy or important or essential to shoot at what is light or unimportant or inessential. So the idea is that if you get the essential, the most important part of the economic system into a stable kind of um, arrangement, then the less important parts of the system will more or less follow. This whole idea of essential versus non-essential um, should sound familiar to all of us after having lived through um, two years of this pandemic, where suddenly this question of how can we ensure the continued operation of essential parts of the system has become a very central policy question. In this context, there is, from the perspective of this statecraft tradition, a need for constant empirical assessment of concrete dynamics. Since what is heavy or light, what is important or unimportant, is not simply statically given, but evolves over time and can also be situational. Heavy and light here also refers to relationships on the market. So something becomes light if, it's, if it is overabundant and becomes heavy when it is in short supply. 
So all of this goes to say that in the 1980s, when Chinese leaders and economists were thinking about the question of how to recreate markets, they were drawing on a very long history of institutional arrangements that involved state market creation and state market participation. And that this reservoir of institutional legacies also played a role in the 1940s and played a role in the context of the liberation policies. So back to the 1970s, late 1970s, where the first and foremost question in the very early years of reform was how to go about agricultural reform. At the time, China was of course still a very predominantly agricultural economy. And there was also a, a, a general recognition that there needed to be a shift away from an emphasis on industrializing first towards an emphasis on developing the countryside and developing agriculture first in order to release um, uh, resources that could then feed into industrialization. During the Maoist period, industrialization had also been basically um, financed through surpluses or more than surpluses from the countryside, where there was a so-called price scissors, um, which means that the price for agricultural goods was set relatively low in comparison to the price for industrial goods, which meant that if um, people producing in the countryside were through the design of prices getting less in return for their product than what they were putting into their product in terms of um, labor effort and other costs, there was a constant net flow of, of, of resources from the countryside to the urban industrial economy. From the perspective of the institutional arrangement, we can broadly speaking, think of the countryside as being organized in people's communes, where each of these people com people's communes had to deliver a grain quota to the central to the national grain system at a state set price, which in other words meant that they got an amount of money in return for the grain that they were delivering, whereas the national grain system would then provide the urban economies with the grain and other basic agricultural resources that they would need. The first thing that happened in the agricultural reforms was basically a bottom-up initiative on the part of um, some agricultural communes that um, suggested that it would be um, preferable for them to produce based on the so-called household responsibility system, where each household would be subcontracting their share in the grain quota that the commune had to deliver to the national grain system. And if they would be able to produce more than their share in the quota, this would then basically um, be on their own accounts. In other words, they would um, gain personally or as a household if they could produce more than their share in the quota. This kind of scheme was initially tolerated from the center in particular in those localities that had been very poor localities and that did not play a major role for the national grain system that were, if you want, so non-essential for the national grain system, 
because they only delivered very small quotas to begin with, or some of them even ended up being net um, receivers of grain and ag other agricultural goods um, transfers. So this so-called dual track system then created a situation where next to the plan, there were market relationships emerging for the production of um, the households that went beyond, um, beyond the, the, their share in the quota. So in other words, there was an emergence of peripheral exchange relations, which for the local part was more or less spontaneous and um, uh, uh, organized by individuals. For the trans-regional part, um, often also involved an important role for commercial agencies on the part of the state were parts of um, the agencies that previously simply managed um, grain quotas now also started to become some sort of traders um, that bought some parts of the surpluses and um, would sell them somewhere else. In sum, this resulted in, as I've already mentioned, a dual track system of production for the quota and for the plan and production for the market happening at the same time under two different prices, a plan price and a market price. Eventually, the system spread throughout China and the dual track price system really became the backbone of the agricultural reforms. The agricultural reforms were so spectacularly successful in terms of increasing grain output very fast that um, by 1984, people considered the problem of national grain production as solved. And this was incredibly important for um, industrial reform since it created a certain space um, in terms of resources that were flowing um, out of the agricultural economy. In the creation of the agricultural reforms, the so-called, what I'm here calling dual track market reformers played a critical role. This was basically an eclectic group of young reform intellectuals most of whom had spent their youth in the countryside during the Cultural Revolution. They were urban youth, but were sent to the countryside um, under, uh, under uh, uh, this movement in, uh, during the Cultural Revolution. And when they returned to the cities in the late 1970s, most of them to enter universities, they continued to be dedicated to the agricultural question, since during their time in the countryside, they had already been um, reading all sorts of Marxist classics, Maoist writings, and so on, trying to understand how the political economy of agriculture could be reformed in order um, to, to lay the foundations for greater economic prosperity in China. They formed an alliance with an older generation of leaders of the kind of generation that I've described in relation to the Civil War, and basically became jointly the, the intellectual backbone of the agricultural reforms, where they went out and did survey research on these bottom-up initiatives on household responsibility systems, and then systematized the experiences on the ground and helped to translate these bottom-up initiatives into national policy. Later on, as this group was becoming an important force in China's market reform debate, 
They also conducted empirical studies across China and state-owned enterprises and in the urban industrial economy more broadly, interviewing consumers and all of that. They also did survey research in Hungary and Yugoslavia. They even did a trip to um, Latin America. Some of them also went to Japan. Um, and some of them also went to, post, uh, to, to, to West Germany, since the West German price reform became an important um, reference point in China's um, price reform debate, which I will get to in a minute. So from the agricultural reforms, then eventually the question became how to go about economic system reform in the urban industrial economy. In a very stylized fashion and certainly um, simplified, we can think of the urban industrial economy as having been constructed based on the idea of one big national workshop. Now, as it is the case with all ideals, reality typically diverges from ideals. And whereas this um, model is, that I will explain in a minute makes it look as if there was a clean, complete uh, planned economy. In reality, there were all sorts of market um, and informal activities happening at the margins of the system. And in some sense, these informal um, activities might have enabled the survival of the system. However, the basic structures of the system were constructed in a way where the idea was that each socialist production unit would be delivering their output to the next socialist production unit. And um, that in return for the deliv delivery of their output, they would get a state set price and for the inputs that were assigned to them, they would have to pay a state set price. On the surface, this then makes it seem as if prices were simply a shadow operation, simply an accounting operation that didn't really matter since the production decisions were di dictated by the plan and the availability of inputs was dictated by, um, by, by, by the, the, the mechanisms of, 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 of command and order. However, prices did perform an important role in being set in a way that facilitated redistribution across different parts of the economy. Just like was the case between the agricultural and the industrial price, where the low agricultural price facilitated the flowing out of resources from the countryside into the urban economy, there was um, to some degree a redistribution happening between sectors. In particular, in essential so-called luxury goods, think of stuff like radios, wristwatches, um, sewing machines, and so on, were priced relatively highly. This was a way to extract liquidity from households. And on the other hand, raw materials and the most upstream, most essential production goods were priced relatively low um, as a way to basically subsidize and encourage more downstream industries. These low heavy industry prices and this essential heavy industry production was also the most controlled, most tightly state um, controlled part of the economy. So that you did not only have prices that were not simply a reflection of costs, but that you also had different degrees of state control across the system with the highest degree of state control in the most upstream parts of the system and lower degrees of central state control 
in more downstream parts. So the question then was, if this is your starting point, how would you be reintroducing market mechanisms into such an economy? During some undergraduate lectures, I've actually broken up students into groups and have asked them to come up with solutions. It's a pretty difficult problem. <laughs> what happened in practice was that as a result of the success of the agricultural um, reforms, markets that were emerging in the countryside were also connecting to the urban industrial economy. In other words, those in the countryside that were producing more than they had to produce for the quota and were selling some of the output on the market and were generating cash in return, wanted to use this cash to buy stuff like radios, bicycle, wristwatches, and sewing machines. So there now was a market demand for consumer goods, which very quickly resulted in the emergence of market production on the part of these um, production units, initially basically in a gray zone. 10 minutes. Yes. Um, as the countryside also started to, um, to, to, to develop more and more township and village enterprises, in other words, as the market production on the part of the rural households moved from simply producing agricultural goods into producing simple light industry goods, there was also increasingly a demand for upstream industrial goods. So in other words, a second market track was emerging more or less endogenously in the urban industrial economy. The question then was, should this market track be fostered, developed and systematized, or should it be suppressed and some other form of uh, reform approach pursued? In this context, these young um, reform and intellectuals that I've mentioned played an important role. They summoned researchers from across the whole country at the so-called Morganshan Youth Conference, and at this youth conference discussed the question of economic system reform, in particular the question of price reform, and came to argue that this dual-track um, uh, uh, reform system that was emerging more or less spontaneously could be systematized into China's reform approach. In fact, the dual track system became national policy in 1985, and Zhao Ziyang, who was then prime minister of China and who was um, one of the most important political leaders of reform in the first decade, he was later imprisoned in the context of June 4th, 1989, and spent the rest of his life in prison. So as a result of this, his legacy is very contested. But I think based on my research, there can be little doubt that he was absolutely instrumental for the economic reforms of the 80s. Um, so he summarized the dual track reform to local cadres who were meant to implement this policy. And he said, this policy would be composed of four elements. It would be composed of letting go of small commodities. The state should no longer control non-essential parts of the economy. The price management system for important commodities should be reformed and the prices of important um, goods should be adjusted carefully in small steps. But fourthly, the state also had a responsibility to participate in the market, as Zhao Ziyang put it, after having enlivened prices by letting them go 
the state had to participate in the market to regulate the prices as in the first years after liberation. For sectors where prices were allowed to fluctuate on the market, the range of the fluctuations should be limited by market participation. This meant that the state should have stocks to be able to add supplies to the market when the prices, price was rising too high and purchase when the price was falling too low. In other words, the state market participation became a key mechanism of China's market reforms. This whole approach was challenged by the so-called package reformers who pursued a very similar intellectual agenda to that which came later to be called shock therapy in the Eastern European context. They did not call it shock therapy, but the intellectual parallels um, abound. The members of this group were predominantly middle-aged established intellectuals who often had a background in orthodox socialist economics of the Soviet type. They were also the first to study in the United States and England, and they were joined by young scientists and engineers. There was a whole connection with Eastern Europe, but also with monetarists and straight out neoliberals like Milton Friedman, which I'm happy to comment on in more detail during the Q&A. I will skip over this and go straight into their arguments. Um, so they criticized the dual track system as creating friction and contradiction since each of the officials in charge of one of these production units would now be facing um, two kinds of prices, a low plan price and a high market price, which would create incentives for rent seeking and corruption since um, they, 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 they would uh, benefit personally if they channeled resources out of the plan, which was of course an incredibly important critique and a critique that had a lot of resonance with the problems that were emerging with the dual track price system. So they argued that China should impose tight fiscal and monetary control, adjust the prices by planning, and then in the next step, let go of all prices, importantly, let go of the core of the prices in the most upstream, most essential industries and replace market participation by the state with indirect macro control. So this was basically the idea of a big bang. Those on the side of the dual track argued that the big bang causes cost push inflation since the prices in the upstream industries were by design set too low in the pre-reform system, which meant that they were bound to shoot up and that these increasing prices in the upstream system would then be handed down to the next um, production unit. Since each of these production units were still socialist production units, they did not have a tight budget constraints. They were not capitalist enterprises of any sort. So what would be happening would be that these price increases would simply be spiraling through the system and that this kind of upward spiral in prices and eventually also wage price spiral could not be contained by macroeconomic control. This might sound familiar in the current context. So they then argued that the state should keep control of the backbone of the urban industrial economy. It could let go of prices of inessential goods, but the question, the key question of the debate 
was really whether or not the state should let go of the most essential, most upstream parts of the economy. In 1986, China came very close to implementing such a big bang. At that time, a study tour in Hungary and Yugoslavia sent back um, telegrams to Premier Zhao Ziyang warning that previous attempts at price liberalization in Hungary and Yugoslavia had been highly inflationary and that this would have the potential to undermine the kind of economic stability that China needed in order to pursue further economic reforms. This plan was then stopped by Premier Zhao Ziyang, who himself had initially um, established this plan. 1988, as the dual track price system itself was creating more and more tensions within China's economy and society, Deng Xiaoping stepped up and himself took the initiative for a form of Big Bang, which was then, however, stopped when in reaction to the Politburo's announcement that it had in principle passed a plan for price and wage reform, um, people started buying up all sorts of durable goods that they could get hold of, withdraw their savings from the banks so or proper bank runs, and basically um, uh, 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 a, a pretty far-ranging form of social unrest and panic that because everybody was withdrawing their savings and running after whatever they could buy, then also created a, 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 a spike in inflation. And the situation became so bad that the leadership decided to revert um, the, the, the attempt at this comprehensive price reform and in fact stall reform for the time being where this whole meltdown in 1988 is an important context to what happened in 1989. This is here Milton Friedman making again an appearance in 1988, once more trying to argue for price liberalization, but by 1988, um, at the time when he came in the fall of 88, the political situation had become so tense that the window of opportunity for such an advice had closed. We're almost out of time. Yes. yes. Um, so in conclusion, I think we can say that there were two competing logics. The logic of the Big Bang, which departs from comparative statics, from a stylized model of the old system, and a theoretically derived target model, where reform is thought of as a shock that facilitates the transition from one static state to the other. Complete markets are thought of as a reform target, whereas this reform target is meant to be achieved by destroying the plan. In contrast, the logic of the dual track price system is one of starting from an analysis of prevailing economic forces and institutions in order to identify ways to create a new kind of reform dynamic initially at the margins of the system, but as this new dynamic is taking hold, eventually transform the economy as a whole. In this context, then, market forces are a means in a larger transformation process, which need to be guided by the state. While China escaped the sh shock therapy in the 1980s, I think a tension between these two reform approaches prevailed throughout the 1990s and 2000s, and in some sense, until very recently. Thank you so much for your attention. Thank you, Isabella. That was um, really wonderful. And I know that I pushed you a little bit 
at the end. This is fascinating stuff. Andrew, please, the floor, the screen is yours. Okay, uh, well, thanks so much. I'm honored actually to be invited to be a discussant for Isabella's presentation because it's such fantastic work. I mean, I have to say that I've been, um, I mean, just uh, watching over the last few years just rise up to fame has been quite impressive. And I think it's entirely deserved, you know, it's, um, the book is fantastic. Everyone should read it. And it's a wonderfully written book. It's dense. It's, you won't read it in a night, but, um, <laughs> but it's, uh, it's, you learn so much from it. Um, I've, I've been immensely enriched by it. And definitely, I would say that, you know, those who, 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 who might dare tweet about you should definitely read it before they say anything, because otherwise they're just putting their foot in their mouths and so on. But um, <laughs> no more on that. Uh, let's, um, uh, and yeah, it's, 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 and also even just your presentation now, it's amazing just to see how you could wrap up almost entirely the book in one hour, uh, which is quite impressive too, a bit of a lesson for me who has a hard time wrapping up one article in, a, in an hour. But, um, my, but obviously my, my job here is to, as discussed in this, to stimulate discussion and debate. So, and I have very little time for that. Uh, so I'll get to the point. And so if I would just focus on, on maybe three points, uh, of course, I have a hard time finding points to really <laughs> challenge because I, you know, I, I enjoyed it so much. Uh, and also there's some things that for me in my own research are really rich, like the whole, one of the sort of protagonists of your story is Wang Xiaocheng. Uh, and um, he actually pops up in a lot of my research on early regional development in Western China, because he also wrote an important book with, uh, by uh, Bei uh, Nanfeng, on uh, the poverty of plenty, which actually is more of a sort of, um, uh, perhaps a bit of one might say in today's language, a colonialist view on the Western minority regions. Uh, and it'd be really interesting to discuss with you more about that, given that you've read his work in so much detail. But besides that, three points I'd focus on for discussion perhaps. One is, um, there's sort of a silence in your book, especially given that this is a gathering of development studies, development economics. There's a silence in your book between the poles of the Chinese intellectual traditions and the mainstream economic traditions between the whole. Of course, there's a discussion of the Soviet debates and so on, uh, but development economics, early development economics, the classics of development economics, where did that lie? The second is also on the notion of gradual change. I'd just like to get into. And the third, even though your book is not about Russia, you still do frame the beginning of it with the comparison of China and Russia. And it could probably be a big takeaway point that a lot of people will take. So just a few comments on that. And on the first point, um, I mean, your, your discussion of the Guanzi system, of course, in ancient China was fascinating. Uh, and the way you connect that to the presence and how it influences ways of thinking. But one thing that really struck me in reading that and maybe it's just lack of space in the book and you've already thought about this and have things planned for the future. But for me, the obvious comparison in that whole lineage of thinking would be to the early modern mercantilist thinking in Europe, uh, where you have the very similar concerns about the role of statecraft, the role of uh, managing monopolies, the role of managing prices and creating markets to build up national strength and a sort of imperial rivalries and so on. And what strikes me is that there's a, a lot of commonality there. If you can contrast the ancient Chinese thinking to modern neoclassical economics, you're like, okay, well, you know, two different worlds. But if you, you compare it to 
mercantilist thinking in Europe, leading right up to Adam Smith, who was also a bit of a late mercantilist author, you find a lot of interesting comparisons there. And of course, what the the uh, one of the authors there we could turn to, of course, is uh, Rigi's book on Adam Smith in Beijing, which I don't necessarily agree with his analysis of China, but his discussion of Adam Smith, of course, in that book is fascinating. Um, and um, and also in that respect, I also just wonder, and perhaps in your research, you've come across it, is to what degree was there a presence in, <laughs> in, in, in this whole development of intellectual thinking in China around reform, uh, both in the 50s and the, in the Indies of classical development economics, particularly some of the pioneers of classical development economics being from the global south, as we call it today, or the third world, non-aligned movement, which China was involved in, or were socialist thinkers for that matter. Uh, I know, for instance, uh, uh, Arthur Lewis, especially in the 2000s, starts to become a major reference point in Chinese discussions about what's happening with the labor market. And pr presumably in the 50s, uh, economists would have been aware of him as well then. The debates about balanced versus unbalanced growth that were occurring between um, Rosenstein, Rodin, and um, and Hirschman, for instance, uh, did, did those did the, those have any presence and influence on the development of uh, these uh, Chinese economists? Um, and also, uh, I mean, Eric Kleiner's work, for instance, he points out even how Sun Yat-sen was an early development thinker in that sense, a pioneer very much. Uh, and so that thinking around development was very much present. And I'm just wondering, there are probably other plural sources of economic development thinking that were influencing the Chinese leadership and Chinese intellectuals and Chinese economists, other than the mainstream Western and the ancient Chinese and, and perhaps the Soviet model as well. Although of course the Soviets, the Soviet discussion of development is very much interlinked with a lot of the development, early development thinking. So that's one point. This was kind of a question to you because I'm curious about that. The second one is on the notion of gradualism, because this is one thing that's always struck me or bothered me, is that, as you say, probably one of the most famous quotes is this idea of crossing the river, feeling the stones. Um, it's sort of like almost, almost, uh, it's the, the other quote that's probably almost as prominent is when Zhu Enlai says, what do you think of the French Revolution? And he says, it's too early to tell. And of course, he was talking about the 68 revolution, not the, not the, the 1768 revolution, but anyways, that's another story. But it's almost like these uh, sayings that take on a, a, a foundational role in certain ideologies, whether or not they're actually accurate representations of what happened. And because what really strikes me in the Chinese, all of these developments, the reform period, the early reform period that you're discussing is actually how radical it was, right? how fast the changes were which you actually even document in your book. You don't foreground it so much in your book. Uh, and you actually clarify this and page, I think it was page 140. I had it in my notes, I can't find it. Uh, page 140 something another where you clarify that um, you talk about the planned gradualism versus the exper experimental gradualism. Uh, and then you clarify that the gradualism wasn't about the pace. It was about taking steps rather than wholesale uh, big bang type ideas. Uh, yet nonetheless, the pace 
when we look at the what was happening at the time it was extremely fast, right? So like, for instance, in one of your footnotes, you cite, I think you were citing Peter Nolan's work on this, uh, where the household contracting had risen from 31% of production units in 1981 to 94% 1983. That was uh, basically uh, two thirds, <laughs> almost two thirds of the rural population in the space of two years shifted th to this model, right? Um, you also saw in the same period fiscal reforms, basically the whole, uh, the, the local states being able to um, keep their own fiscal resources within a short space of time, just suddenly the, the whole redistrib fiscal redistributive system uh, had collapsed and provinces, Western and Central provinces, which were which I've done a lot of my work on, which were reliant on subsidies fell into stagnation because all of a sudden their subsidies collapsed, right? So um, you, you also saw the collapse of the rural health system. Um, and even if the price, even if the price reform, as you say, was gradual, it was still extremely rapid, as you just showed in some of your figures there, or in the beginning of your book. Uh, and of course, the balance of payments was one thing you you mentioned the balance of payments in the 70s, but in the 80s, of course, the the trade deficit sank to under four percent of GDP uh, by 1985, which is probably a major underlying concern that was informing a lot of the decision making. And so it's um. Uh, and I'm sure you would agree with me on all of this, but it's just the, 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 the messaging about gradualism, I always find it to be a, a tricky one because it, it could encourage an interpretation of the Chinese experience as sort of uh, discouraging, uh, ambitious planning uh, for development, the sort of the developmentalist big grand plans, whereas actually the, the Chinese example was very much that, right? That while we could characterize certain aspects of gradualism, in the sense of not wholesale uh, bang, but a very quick stepping, it's nonetheless extremely big, large scale, ambitious projects that they're undertaking in extremely short periods of time. And that just leads to my third point in the comparison with Russia, and I'll wrap up quickly because I'm sure I've gone over time already, is this in that, in that sense as well, in the comparison of Russia, I often find it a bit tricky in the sense that they're obviously offset by a decade, right? And I even wonder to what extent <laughs> The, the, the where China ended up by the late 80s, which you describe in chapter eight uh, in, in some detail, um, might have even sort of given the message, sort of uh, given the signs that their gradualism to a certain degree failed, right? Uh, I mean, even it's interesting, Richard, um, uh, uh, sorry, the um, Robert Allen in his recent American Economic Review article where he does the cost of basic needs approach to measuring poverty. Actually, it's quite interesting in there because in contrast to the World Bank $1.9 a day PPP poverty line, where he does uh, he, he, he does a poverty line um, with linear programming on cost of basic needs, you actually just see in the late 80s and 90s the sharp up uh, uh, increase in poverty rates in China that only then starts to decline in the mid 90s. And the impact, especially from the mid 80s onwards, was actually quite severe, right? You had the big trade deficit, you had inflation, which you talk about, you had a uh, rural stagnation, you had um, rising poverty in this context and so on. And actually, the, the, that example might well have actually reinforced the messaging to the Russians when looking at their options. I'm not saying that, you know, Big Bang was any better, but that actually, the, the Chinese example in that sense wasn't necessarily by the end of the 80s, 
necessarily giving uh, a, a good example. And it just raises a point that um, Wang Chaohua in New Left Review 2015 wrote this excellent critique of Perry Anderson's uh, discussion of the Russian and Chinese revolution. And she, she makes the point where, whereas in Russia, they, they politically liberalized before economically liberalizing. No, sorry, the other way. Uh, uh, um, yeah, political liberalization preceded economic liberalization. On one hand, the economy collapsed, but at the same time, there was the preservation of sort of universalistic social security and social policy that nonetheless sustained, of course, an extremely different urban industrial context, sustained people's quality of life much more than China, where because they economically liberalized and eventually didn't even politically liberalize, the economy took off, but universal health care collapsed. Uh, there was a lot of trauma for a lot of people, and she she makes the point that a lot of this is often doesn't receive any emphasis in this whole discussion, um, and the degree to which actually uh, we have to take this into consideration. And I think you do actually. When when I got to chapter eight, I was uh, you do get into that, but um, but it, it, I think it probably in that whole story of the China Russian comparison, especially in terms of its temporal continuity going from, because of course, you, you know, Jeffrey Sachs only rose to fame in the late 80s already. And the, the, the option of Jeffrey Sachs style Big Bang wasn't really an option until the late 80s, early 90s in any case, right? So, but the Chinese experience probably fed into that in that perspective. And I just, your thoughts on that anyways, but these were just three issues that I wanted to raise reading your book that triggered my thoughts in terms of comments I can make in 10 minutes. Um, thank, thank you very much. It's a fantastic book and everyone I think should read it. Thanks, Andrew. And we need to have you back to give a talk as well. Uh, <laughs> sure. We'll bring you back into this discussion. Isabella, I don't know if you want to very quickly respond. We're already getting a lot of questions or go straight to questions and respond to some of what Andrew said as you answer them. Maybe I try to very quickly respond, okay. which is virtually impossible. Yes, answer <laughs> some big questions. Let me just very quickly just say, say a, a, a quick few words, if, if you don't mind. Um, okay. So on the question of colonial con, colonialist view towards the Western regions, I think it's important to keep in mind that all of this idea of economic system reform is very much from the perspective of redesigning the whole system in the name of the system, right? And this is the case on both sides of this debate. So in that sense, I see this as not necessarily being inconsistent with this kind of view of the Western regions, because from that perspective, it is very much from the perspective of power in the center of Beijing. Um, on the question of the early mercantilists, um, I think Eric Helena's latest book is fabulous and he's engaging um, but some of the same Chinese thinkers as me and the new, and the mercantilist thinkers. So I think this is this is uh, just just a shout out to to Eric. Um, but substantively, I think one key difference between the early mercantilists and people like like the or I mean not people texts like the Guanzi is that the early mercantilists, of course, have a state-driven outward-oriented project. And the project of the Guanzi is to create uh, or try to create a stable arrangement um, of markets and states internally that is also meant to finance war externally. But the 
the, 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 the state market participation is focused on the domestic economy rather than on the outward drive of, of, of colonial enterprises such as the East India Company. Um, on the notion of gradualism, um, I agree with everything that you have said. Um, I just want to make one very quick comment. Yes, gradualism can be extremely radical and fast. And I think that the agricultural reforms is the best example. As Wang Xiaoxiang was actually saying in our interview, um, people say the agricultural reforms were gradualist. The people's commune was the backbone of the Maoist economy. And it was abolished within the span of only two, three years. So this is the most radical kind of institutional reorganization that you can imagine from the perspective of the institution of the people's commune, which as he is arguing was by the way, also very fundamental political reform, since this was also the backbone of the political organization of the system. So this whole idea of polit political reform, political liberalization being absent in China and being present in Russia, I think is based on a very narrow definition of what political reform means, because um, if you take the, the organization, the political organization of the countryside seriously, then there was, I mean, you, you may like it or not, it's not necessarily political reform in the sense of democratization, but it's still a very fundamental political reorganization. Yes, um, I think that Chinese gradualism has to be thought of as the unleashing of new dynamics. And this unleashing of new dynamics, as I've tried to argue, can become extremely powerful in ways that transforms the core in a very fast way. But the thing is that you start from unleashing new dynamics at the margins. In the first instance, you don't abolish the people's commune. Only once this whole market dynamic takes hold, you abolish the people's commune, which is the, the opposite of saying, start by abolishing the people's commune. Um, and this kind of gradualism, this unleashing of new dynamics is always in the context of extremely bold, extremely ambitious, extremely long-term projects that take a very vague and unclear form to begin with, and that are then specified as these new dynamics are being ch channeled into certain directions. Okay, I'll just leave it at that, which I know okay. is not answering all your points but just as a quick reaction yeah this is the last of our series for this academic year and we will ask you all to look forward to the series in the next academic year now isabella weber andrew fisher thank you very much i mean these are very strategic and of the moment issues um, and we can see from all of this how important it is to understand history and historical processes, which are so, so, so determinant in terms of understanding the possibilities for today. So thank you very much. And I'm sure everybody would be clapping if they could actually clap on Zoom. <laughs> okay. so, Thanks for tuning into this lecture recording from the Cutting Edge Issues in Development, Thinking and Practice series for 2021-2022. To hear more, don't forget to subscribe to our channel on Spotify, Apple, Google or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch any of these lectures back on our YouTube channel. Just search YouTube for International Development LSE. Stay informed about upcoming events, including the next Cutting Edge Lectures, by searching for events on the LSE Department of International Development website 
or just follow us on Twitter at LSE underscore ID for the latest updates.